Blog Talk Radio. Whatever he hears. He will speak. He will disclose. What is to come? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to WI2C Radio. Revelation, the book of Asaph, the apocalypse of Isaiah, it's all coming true. Welcome ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program. Tonight we go to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, the second group that is numbered 144,000. Boy, there is much debate and controversy over the identity therein of those that are numbered, but we're going to grapple with it tonight, no doubt about it. We're going to see what we can see, and we're probably going to cover things that, well, you've probably never heard covered before. But... You know, it's good to offer opening comments before we dive into this chapter because, well, it contains just about everything, really. Uh, It's quite lengthy, and it really stands out in two parts. It's really segmented into two parts, just exactly like Revelation chapter 7, actually. But that's my opening thoughts on it. Bri, what's your opening comments about this particular chapter well it's the one thing that stood out to me the most today is when you actually sit down and go over it in a simple manner with a fine-tooth comb there is a whole lot being said in every single verse that literally answers a lot of the questions right there in broad daylight and brings together a whole lot of light on a multitude of things. And I've yet to hear anybody talk about what's sitting right here in broad daylight in its proper context. So I hope that was a a bit of a starting thought here. Oh, most certainly. Uh, You know, the most you ever hear about this chapter is the first part. And they always say the same thing, that, uh, well, these are evangelists, uh, basically what they what they say. And uh, these evangelists uh, preach during the tribulation. Uh, beyond that, you never even hear about the second part, and it's never put into its proper context as to when this happens, uh, because this is certainly a time frame. But the second part, uh, well, with the angel uh, that makes the announcement, um, every time you listen to anybody talk about this, any kind of discourse about it, if they mention the second portion, they never mention the first portion 
and vice versa. They never put them together. They never connect the two together, not ever, that I've ever heard. Um, so I absolutely uh, agree with you that most people are not, well, instructed to go over this with a fine-tooth comb. Uh, they're just they're just not um, and that should be disturbing in of itself when people really think about it that they've never heard revelation chapter fourteen covered in one setting. It's always segmented, and the two portions are never mentioned together, not ever um and that's just that's just bothersome uh to me, and he points you directly. Uh, back to the first ones that get numbered, no doubt about that. But it's just, I agree with you, Bri, it's really frustrating. So, those comments being said, let's get to the text, shall we? I think I will start out reading. I believe that Brian started out reading last time. So, this edition... Uh, I'll just start reading, and I'll just read the first, uh, well, the first, the first portion. We'll just take it one slug at a time, shall we? Reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpist playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they've kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Brian, your comments on these first five verses. Well, the biggest thing that stands out right away here is... Well, you brought up that the atypical thing that's going around is that these are 144,000 evangelists. Yet, you're being told where they're gathered together at. So it, to a degree, does not make any sense. There's other hints within this. You know, it's a rather interesting if you go out and look into when is a human being capable of lying at what age with uh, verse 5 here well at that point is exactly correct uh, no lie is found in their mouth I mean that's kind of a telltale but you know before anybody ever considers this you know ladies and gentlemen you have to realize that this is screaming it is absolutely screaming, Exodus chapter 13. And you just have to come to grips with this. Uh, but we have to go there. I've been studying Exodus chapter 13 there, but 
you have to realize all the laws instituted there. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's quite important that you realize the purchase of the firstborn. This is exactly what it's talking about here. It can't be talking about anything else. This is talking about a firstborn, and when anyone is born, they have to be consecrated to the Lord. Exodus chapter 13. Then the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb, among the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me. There is no doubt, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what he's referring to. He can't be referring to anything else besides that. So with that in mind, when you get to the part where, uh, well, they're blameless, uh, no lie can be found in their mouth, well, that would make it absolutely true. Beyond any shadow of a doubt. Uh, I mean, he just came right out and told you uh, exactly what would happen if these were actual firstborn sons. And he actually did. And there is other Old Testament scriptures dealing with the right of the firstborn being the heir it's all over it. He covers that, too, because he comes right out and says that they have two names in their foreheads, his and his father's. There is no doubt what God is referring to here. He is talking about only those that have opened the womb as a firstborn son. He's Scripturally, he's not, he can't be talking about anything else. So, the part with the lie being in their mouth, that's set aside. He's gone way out of his way to prove to you what's being referenced here. And you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 21, and, and there's lots dealing with a firstborn son and them having the right to be uh, an inheritance. It's, it's all over the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen. Now... Uh, like I said, there's even rules specific to this that, according to the law, uh, you have to realize that uh, it, it, well, I already mentioned it, Deuteronomy chapter 21, it provides inheritance rules preventing the husband with more than one wife from having property to the son of the favored wife. So, these verses, these first five verses... He comes out and makes himself perfectly clear that these 144,000 are the firstborn heirs, and that there's no way around that, biblically speaking. So, this ties in, well, there are two firstborns. We know that Christ is already prototokos necros. He is the firstborn from the dead. And there will be first fruits from the dead. Or the tomb, as I like to put it. There's two types. The firstborn from the womb and the firstborn from the tomb. We haven't gotten to it yet. But the Bible is going to make it perfectly clear 
that one of these groups are most certainly the first fruits from the tomb. So the only conclusion you can come to is exactly what on the surface is perfectly logical. He can only be talking about the firstborn from the womb. That's who these are. So it's really quite simple, especially when you you have studied uh, the human development. I mean, for thousands of years, I mean, thousands of years, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you're talking about a child two years and under. Oh, you think that the Roman soldiers would walk up to the mothers and ask them how old their baby boy was before they slaughtered it? Of course not. If you need a hint, you ain't got a clue. Those soldiers would stick their thumbs in their mouths to see if they, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, had their front teeth yet. They'd run a sword through it. But this is common knowledge. It's common knowledge. Of course the mother was going to lie to you. You checked for the front teeth. If it didn't, you killed them. If it had them, well, it's that simple. Ladies and gentlemen, two years and under, everybody knew what that meant. That knowledge has only been forgotten in the past hundred years. So, Brian, back to you. Well, that's – yeah, you stop right where the thing I was going to explain because I know we've talked about the 144,000 quite a few times here in this series, but I don't know that we ever went deeply into the identity and this is where everybody has to understand history going in to a third repetition, or as Matthew always says, the third time's a charm, the third time are on the ride. You understand what I'm getting at here. But it's speaking of those children that are two years and under and in the womb. We had this happen at the time of the Exodus, two years and under and in the womb, the slaughter of the innocents, and on top of it, we even did the program with David Roll where they have found archaeological evidence supporting this happening. At the time of the birth of Christ, we also had the slaughter of the innocents, two years and under and in the womb. Now, it's rather entertaining if you go over to the Wikipedia for the slaughter of the innocents, you'll find out that one of the uh, groups had a number listed of those two years and under in the womb that were slaughtered, and it was 144,000. So now you have the identity and can understand who these are. Well, really, we have their age group is is really what it it, it means, but... We should have already got that from the Apocalypse of Isaiah. Um, when the ap Apocalypse of Isaiah describes, and it does this in order, it describes the firstborn from the womb, and then it describes the firstborn from the tomb. It, it does it in chronological order for you. But it's left open. But uh, we have a piece hanging here. Well, what is this group going to do? Where are they going to go? This is the whole reason why the book of Obadiah was written. Okay, and the cherry really is on top. Verse 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom 
will be the Lord's. Period. Period. So, you know, this is why the Hebraic term for this group is Moshe'im. That's exactly what it states here. It states Moshe'im. That's, that's what it says. There is absolutely no way around it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you may be shocked at Brian and I that, well, what do you mean? Well, look at the Hebrew. Now, if you bring up Strong's, uh, you're not going to see what you need to see because that sure is not Yeshe. That's not what it is. It's Moshe'im. And just so you all know, uh, Moshe is how you pronounce Moses' name in Hebrew. And that funny little ending that you heard pronounced, Ayim, or Yod Mem, that means, that means plural. This literally in Hebrew, when you read it, it means the Moseses. The Moseses will ascend Mount Zion. That's literally what it says. And uh, it really is that simple. And, and we're not hiding anything from you. Uh, it's just that, well, no one else has told you about this before. And I'm sorry about that. But it is the truth. Right there in Hebrew, God gives, I mean, he names them for you. The Moshe'im. It's, it's literally that simple. Now, we also uh, prophetically have this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27. And it says something, it's not possible. It's not possible what it states here. But it says, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them, and when they cried out to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them into the hand of your oppressors. You want that with all your heart to say judges. It don't. It says, Moshe'im. And in this context, he can only be referring about one event. Now, I'm going to have to reference another work that you probably are quite unfamiliar with. That's the book of Asaph. But I'm going to have to talk about it because in this, that's, this is how the prologue starts out. I mean, right out and up front. A psalm of Asaph, the mighty one. God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, you was hoping that was in reference to a hill in Israel. Well, there's also another place in Israel called that, Mount Zion. That's the city of David. Guess what? There's a third one. It's also supposed to be the Temple Mount because it's not. Because, well, you're supposed to know what that word means uh, in Hebrew. It is a... Monumental or guiding pillar. Uh, there's only one thing like that ever in history. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, Revelation goes on to reveal to you where it is. So stop looking for it. It's in heaven right now. But, uh, you know, let me, let me continue. Verse 3. May our God come and not keep silent. Fire devours before him and is very... <laughs> uh, let me stop right there 
this is the time that the deliverance is talked about, ladies and gentlemen. So go to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27, and read that, and know that that's the time that this is talking about. This is prophecy, because it, let me say it one more time, this does not use judges. You want it to say judges. Yeah, he's talking about Samson and Ehud. No, no, he's not. He doesn't say judges here. He says Moshe'in. And we just got the answer to these prophecies. We just got them. God just gave them to us in the first five verses of Revelation chapter 14. Now, I appreciate that Brian was being politically correct. And he said that David Rule had discovered the evidence. Nah, no. No, I'm going to say that. Well, like I say it, he found the proof. That's what David Rule did. Yeah, getting his hands dirty. He got the proof. That's what he got, proof, not evidence. So, when you understand, uh, just take all these things in context. He must be talking about the rules and the rights of the firstborn from the womb. In this chapter. And yes, uh, those that will ascend Mount Zion have been named. Their name is Hebraically Moshe'im. It literally, when you pronounce it, it means the Moseses. That's what it means. And we're not done with Asaph. I mean, I wish that we was. But, ladies and gentlemen, you just have to understand that what he just described is a perfect representation of what is described in First Chronicles chapter 25. And I'll read it. Now, you'll take note that it said harps, right? Well, let's, let's hear what, what really has to be stated and why this particular individual must be implied. He must be implied. Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph, Haman, and of Jebuthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals, and the number of those who performed their service was, of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, Joseph, Nathaniah, and Asherah, the sons of Asaph, who were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. Now, this is the only man that has ever operated under such auspices. How can you prophesy with music? I don't know. I do know I am incapable of learning the song of the 144,000. I do have the wherewithal to understand who must have composed that tune. It was Asaph. Number two, he only prophesied under the order of the king. Now, which king is in reference in the chapter we just read from? Because he went, once again, way out of his way to tell you he was talking about the Lamb. It says his name and his father's name. And goes way out of his way to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that they're the first fruit, so, I mean, let's run down this diatribe here. 
if you ever read this chapter without knowing about Exodus chapter 13 and the rules for the firstborn, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, and, and I'm not going to cover all of them. I just don't need to. This is only dealing with the law of the first fruits from the womb. And I read it to you. And the simple fact that we got a lot of information about these directly from the book of Asaph, which is prologue, Psalms 50, which I started out reading for you, and then Psalms 73 through 83. And then the simple fact that this is the whole purpose why Obadiah was written. I mean, there is no sense in even reading Revelation chapter 14 if you've never read the 21 short verses from Obadiah. There's no purpose. You have no idea what's going on. Now, in lieu of this, uh, you know, it, I probably need to read some more verses uh, from Obadiah because it's inverted here. The story's inverted. Okay? You're told about the Moshim in the last verse of Obadiah. However, it's the opening that you get in Obadiah describes the latter portions of Revelation chapter 14. So it's flip-flopped. But make no mistakes about it. Um, you know, he's, he's talking about very important things here. Uh, let's go to uh, Obadiah verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place who say in your heart who will bring me down to earth. And though you build high like an eagle, though you set your nest amongst the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So you should expect to hear something about this. But we're not going to take time to read the whole thing. You can rewind this like everybody else does. I mean, I have listeners that just told me today, they counted the times they listened to the last show. They had to listen to it 17 times in order to get enough time to write all the notes. So you can do that at your leisure. So, well, Brian, back to you uh, if you have further comments. Well, it's interesting that you brought in Nehemiah 9, and there's just so much going on here. And the reason I find it interesting that Nehemiah is coming into the equation here is because between Ezra and Nehemiah, with the work that I've done with the uh, year that the second temple was rebuilt, which is vastly different than what they're trying to tell people, and the birth of Messiah – at the same time, goes hand-in-hand hand with that work. And a lot of your starting points go between Daniel, obviously, and Ezra and Nehemiah, so you can start locking in historical references with Persia and everything else that's going on. So once again, you're going back around the ride, but this Nehemiah 9 has got so much information concerning what to watch for as well coming the third time around the ride here. And you get near the end of that chapter and it starts bringing up Assyria and everything else. So, folks, I would strongly advise taking the time to uh, stop after you're listening and read this chapter. 
I would absolutely wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it's just that uh, with our scope of time, I mean, right now we've only got 25 minutes left. We just can't cover everything. But like I said, what uh, the verses that we have mentioned so far, it's absolutely pointless for you to read this chapter without knowing those in advance. And, well, that's, I mean, we are covering the last book in the Bible. So everything prior to this, you should already have down. But, you know, I, I'm sorry if you've never heard these things. But, ladies and gentlemen, um, go ask your local rabbi if you can get him to speak with you. But if he will answer your question, say, hey, say that out loud. What's it say? He'll say, it says Moses's. And we're sorry if you, you know, have never heard uh, the work of David Roll. He really did dig in the dirt and find, find the proof of the slaughter of the innocents. So you just need to research those things on your own. But we had better get moving forward and rather quickly. Um, verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Now, I do want to stop long enough to say this. He's pointing you right back to the book of Asaph again. Uh, he's just detailed for you, well, you need to read the prologue and, well, read Psalm chapter 50 and Psalm chapter 73. And you're going to understand why this angel said exactly what he said and why he stated it that way. Brian, did you have any comments on those verses or shall I continue? I'll go ahead and continue. All right, ladies and gentlemen. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all the nations of the wine, all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Brian, do you have any comments on that? Well, I'm going to comment on a few of these in line here. I didn't notice uh, 14.6 when you uh, asked me that the last time. Um, uh, because this is one that everybody talks about where they think that if they, the evangelists get more people out there preaching the gospel and they find all the missing hidden tribes that are in the jungles here, there, and everywhere, then the last days are going to come. But folks, this is a direct reference to that. where It states that the gospel must be preached to the whole earth. Well, folks, this angel does that. Then we move forward. On top of it, we're getting information as to the approximation of when this is going to be happening. Well, Revelation 16 and 17 gives us more details on what's going on here within the messages of these three angels. 
And I think I can cut off right there. <laughs> All right. Very good. Um, and with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, he's obviously referencing Babylon here to be the whole planet because it includes all the people therein. So you should realize that this is a finality. Now, before we get to the next one, you need to realize he's doing exactly to you what he did in Revelation chapter 7. The last portion, as Brian I stated, was in future perfect tense. So, well, I've read to you what God was planning on doing from the book of Asaph. Psalm chapter 50 tells you. He comes out of his place and he answers his people's pleas. Now, this is not Jesus. This is God the Father. So, with that in mind, these angels are informing everybody <laughs> what just happened. Because at this present moment, it's game over. Or, for the woman, it's game on. But for everybody else, it's game over. It's literally game over. So, with that in mind, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, take note. At this point in time, you've already been told how many people are not going to take the mark. It's 144,000 sealed, they are sealed by God, and they can't take it. They get beheaded. Verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. A direct reference back to the last verse in Revelation chapter 12, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, well, maybe I'll stop right there. Brian, did you have any comments about what this third angel had to declare? I like how you stopped, but yeah, I do. Now, there is uh, people you should have known this is going to start floating after a while, but they're running around trying to tell people that it's okay if you take the mark um, because God knows your heart and it's your worship. Um, folks... That's baloney. You hear anybody saying that? Run. That's not true. And you should know that by just these few verses. You cannot take that mark. You do. It's game over. Case closed. That's what I got to say for the time. 
I will go ahead and give uh, further verses. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've never heard that this is why Isaiah chapter 48 was written, you need to go ahead and hurry up and read that because those that were sealed in Revelation chapter 7, uh, I'll just read one, one verse to you so you understand that they cannot take the mark of the beast because they've been sealed by God. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 4, Because I know that you are abstinent, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. So, I need to study that chapter for further information on the 144,000 from Revelation chapter 14, but right now, or Revelation chapter 7, right now we got to get back to this group of 144,000. So, at this point, we've had three angels pronounce judgment, or declare things, and we're told what happens. Um, they're cast in hell forever. Sorry, um, I know preachers love to tell you that uh, hell's not forever. Um, no, he just, he just point blank said, it's forever. The smoke of their torment goes up forever. Verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, so that they may rest from their neighbors for their deeds will follow them. Once again, this is a direct reference to the 144,000, they get sealed. And later on in Revelation, you're told what happens. But we're not there yet. We'll have to cover all these things. Remind everybody when we do get to those chapters. And yes, their deeds will follow them. And they'll have nothing but deeds from that point out. Because I will tell you this. They cannot be a part of the bride. They can't be. Because God gives them jobs. They have jobs to do from that point forward. They have to work. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And the other angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle. And reap, for the hour to reap is come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. For these last verses, ladies and gentlemen, um, you're getting things that is going to happen. Um, but let's uh, let... Brian, give his comments on the last portion of Revelation chapter 14. Brian? Well, I'm going to step back up to 14.12 and 14.13 because you specifically stopped there before I spoke last time. And, uh, folks, you have to realize there's some very specific things said here in 14 verse 12 and verse 13 that you should remember Here's the patience of the saints. Here are the ones keeping the commands of God and the faith of Jesus. You should automatically recognize. Okay, hold on. 
out of Revelation uh, 12, verse 17, and the dragon was enraged over the woman and went away to make war with the rest of her seed, or some translations, children. Just like Daniel 9 state, or Daniel states as well. And what is this group the dragon has went to make war with? Those keeping the commandments of God and having the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the same group that's being spoken of in these two verses. You have the group that has went to the place that was prepared for them. What was the difference between those groups? They loved their loved not their lives even when faced with death. So you're getting exactly the identification here with these two verses. Yes, you are. It makes itself pretty clear. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, if you remember back to Revelation chapter 7, it does this very same thing. It gives you the complete and total picture. And when you go there, uh, maybe I'll just talk about this lightly uh, so everybody understands. The second portion is a group after the 144,000 in the great tribe and nations. You'll take note, ladies and gentlemen, that this is all in future perfect tense here. It says that he will spread his tabernacle over them. It's a future event from that time. So here in Revelation chapter 7, you get the future end message for the bride. In Revelation chapter 14, you just got the end message for everybody else. You just got the end time message for everybody else. There is no other that looks like a son of man. There is nobody else in heaven uh, that is wearing a crown on their head. You can take that to the bank. This is not a verse referencing a son of man that is just exclusive. Right here, you just got what happens when Jesus returns. Where? And you will meet him where? That's right. In the cloud. It went way out of its way to tell you that. So literally speaking, Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14, the end part of those chapters gives you the complete picture, one from a bridal standpoint, one from the doomed standpoint. Now, he's done this for a reason. He's trying to point out to you that everything in between has been quite crazy as far as chronology is concerned. Now, he's going to give you the details of all of that coming up. Now, Brian, has, uh, Brian and I have talked about those things extensively. But from here on out, you're going to get massive details of what it's like. Well, here, let me explain this. You're going to get massive details of what happened to Egypt after the Exodus, something you've never known before. You're going to get massive details of the collapse only this time, it's the whole planet. He made that perfectly clear with this reference to Babylon and 
all the nations, everybody, laddie daddy, everybody. He's letting you know this time it's not a country. This time it's not a province. This time it's not even a city. It's the whole planet he's going to bring down. Now, that is the best way to describe it, and you have to understand it that way. And when you just, you know, I cannot say this enough. All of you need to go to used stores, especially like um, Goodwill or Salvation Army. Find yourself some used Bibles for like two bucks. Buy them. Tear out Revelation chapter 7 and put it on a poster board. Tear out Revelation chapter 14 and put it on a poster board. And start comparing them and aligning them. And you're going to readily understand that what Brian and I have just showed you is absolutely and emphatically the case. And it cannot be any other case. Brian, your comments. Well, and as you brought up here, we're right away here in 14, verse 14, you start with the cloud. Now we go backwards again. And Matthew touched on this slightly. When it speaks about those that are alive and remain shall be caught up together. The Greek word meaning seized as like booty. This is the group of people it's referring to. Those that are still alive from out of the group that the dragon has gone on to make war with because they refuse to take that mark, the ones that are still alive and remaining, this is the group which Second Thessalonians, you can even take it to Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, and about a billion other places. Now, all of a sudden, everything starts making sense. Yet, I have not heard a single teacher out there ever state that those verses were talking about this. I guess it's sort of mind-boggling. Well, it, it, it really is, I guess, for most people. Um, you know, Brian, I, I remember when I was in an institution of higher learning, I, I was in the dormitory, ladies and gentlemen, I... Four Christian ministries majors, so everybody in there was a preacher. Every single one of them. And when I pointed out these things to them, they were in a state of shock. They'd never heard it. And it, their action, and, and some of these were seniors. There were two seniors that immediately jumped to my mind. I can see their face. They were absolutely shocked because they were getting ready to graduate. And they're like, wait a minute. You're saying everything we've learned has been incorrect. I said, well, did you pass your test? That Well, yeah, we passed our test. Well, I guess you said the right thing then. But that's not what's going to happen. So, and by the way, neither one of those men are preachers anymore. So, with that, on, with that in mind, what Brian just said is a gross understatement. But ladies and gentlemen, when he puts his sickle in and swings... That's in the errorist case, by the way. All right. Let us finish up. You know, ladies and gentlemen, wow. I know everything that Brian and I have said so far has been quite a shocker to you. I know it has been. 
but we are telling you the truth, and all you have to do is investigate it. Tear it apart. Scour this chapter. Scour all the other references we've made to other verses and places. Scour them. If you don't know what that means, look it up. All right. We need to finish up this chapter. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to start with 17 again. The, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, who has the power over fire, came out of the altar and called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the wine of from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Brian? Well, just it. When you combine all this... All this stanza, once again, this is uh, repetitions, which you're going to be seeing all over the place. Um, I'd say do a uh, study on the wine press, the uh, grape harvest, and, yep, with the sickle right there, and what else was this one? Ah. Uh, and the other sickle that's being thrust into the earth. If you do a deep study on each one of these, you're going to learn a whole heck of a lot here. And it's just, it's, that alone is about a two-hour teaching just on each one of these. So, but as we move forward, you're going to start seeing repetitions as well from this chapter as things are explained in more detail later on. Exactly. And I mean, I don't know how... You know, the verses that I just read, ladies and gentlemen, I keep making reference to what's, what is to come, what is to come. But I'm, I'm going to have to say this, okay? Uh, this angel uh, that has the sickle, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. I keep, I, I keep referencing it, okay? So I'm, I'm just going to have to give this to you now. And then when we get to Revelation chapter 20, then we'll just have to remind you of it. But... Remember what I just said, okay? Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, if I keep reading, if I keep reading, then you're going to find all about the group that was just numbered. So maybe I should. Now, we're already we're already past the hour mark. We we just shouldn't be reading from this, but I just had to say that because of the, well, the last verses that we just read about this angel who 
uh, harvested everything else. You have to realize that this is playing together when this happens. I mean, when Christ gets here in the cloud, it's game over. It's done. It's done. And like I said, after this group was numbered, you had to get the full story of what was going to happen to everyone who was in the outer darkness, who had not been taken to a place that was prepared. So, remember that. The end of Revelation chapter 7, it gives you the numbering, and then it tells you what's going to happen to you. This tells you what happens to everybody else. So it's bookends on time itself. This is exactly what Daniel chapter 8 was talking about. Time, the dividing of time, and time. It's the two bookends. Literally, from Revelation chapter 7 to 14, is the dividing of time. Even though it is sequential, that doesn't make it chronological. Even if it's chronological, that doesn't make it sequential. What do I mean by that? Time has gone topsy-turvy. God has literally... Well, read that first chapter of Asaph, Psalm chapter 50, and you'll start to have a hint as to what's going on. Read the entire book of Asaph, and you'll definitely have a clue as to the machinations involved. Brian? Well, and that's just it. When you look over here at Revelation 20 as well, you know, obviously we have the secondary battle of Gog and Magog, but when you go back to those other chapters I referred to earlier with uh, Revelation 16 and 17, well, you're going to find, lo and behold, that the city, the continent of Babylon nuked off the earth, then comes the great battle, Gog and Magog, part one. On top of it, you have ten kings listed there. We'll get to all that. But nonetheless, you're getting the same data stream in all reality. It's just this time in Revelation 20, we're at the second time around the ride with Gog and Magog. That's right. That's exactly right. But... Once everybody does what we said and, you know, put Revelation chapter 7 and realize that that last portion is about us and this last portion is about the bad people, and they're really going to get it from here on out, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we have no idea what happened once Pharaoh's army was completely obliterated. I mean, we really don't know what happened for those, well, next 42 years, because that's what it was. Because remember, now remember, they did not start their wandering in the wilderness until two years after the Exodus, so it's total 42 years. We have no idea uh, what went on in Egypt during that collapse. We And David Rule has done a lot of research in that, that time frame, but well, let me interject in. Yeah, we do know what happened in Egypt. That's the Hyksos. That's their reign. Who is the Hyksos? Well, the first group of invaders was, just as the Bible states, Amalek. You can see how easy it was for Amalek to overrun Egypt at that point in time because they were obliterated. And this is in the archaeological record. It's There's written documentation. It keeps going. 
a second set of invaders came in, which ended up founding most of the Greek, uh, what they would refer to with the broad term of Greek nations, after they were expelled out of Egypt. So, yes, we do know what happened. Well, thank you for the correction. Uh, maybe people didn't realize what I, I meant. We know what, yes, we do know what chronologically what happened, ladies and gentlemen, but I mean the horrors that they went through. Because I assure you, they weren't nice to the locals. All their gods was eradicated. Everything was eradicated. Um, of course, their land was taken. So literally, what we're going to get between here and Revelation chapter 20, I mean, we're going to get some insight as to how bad it was to the Egyptian people. Because the Egyptian people were leaving, uh, were living luxurious. They were literally top dogs. And then all of a sudden, they don't have an army. Everybody finds out. And, well, a lot of the things described by Jeremiah is probably what happened to the local Egyptians when the Hyksos invaded. Because that's just how it was done back then. So we're going to get details what it's going to be like to be alive and not have been taken on Operation Eagle's Wings and taken to a place that's been prepared. The Bible doesn't offer us any information on that. God didn't care what happened to Egypt after the Israelites left. One thing's for sure, he's going to give you detailed information as to what it's going to be like in that outer darkness. You're going to get first-hand details of how truly horrible the living conditions are going to become on the late great planet Earth. So, Brian, your final comments, please. Well, I think we covered a whole lot here, and folks, we went through and we gave specific spots to look at i would strongly advise going through and looking at those and on top of it run your cross references even look at some of the original language and start going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and all this stuff will start to just stand out like a sore thumb i mean with us we've been doing this for years for people that are used to studying in that way well that's the easiest way to go so we try to list as many things as we can. And, you know, there's even some historical odds and ends that we brought up. And if you need assistance, even email me at thebandsoftime at gmail.com, and I'll point you in the right direction. So I hope that sort of sums things up. Yes, it did. Yes, it did indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you take the time to write down all those cross-references because... Well, you, you need to know what's going on, because if you've never heard of the Moshiim before now, you probably need to get up to speed. And that's literally an understatement. You probably need to get up to speed on that. So, with that in mind, WI2C Radio, signing off. <laughs>